Hello and welcome to Upstage the Podcast, your weekly dose of theatre news and reviews. I'm Rachel. And I'm Abby. This week we have a brief news section for you because not much has happened this week. And then we'll be moving on with our musical decade series by talking about some shows from the 1950s. Now the 1950s was a very big decade for musicals. They don't call it the golden age for no reason. So we're going to split this into two parts. And this week we're going to take you through the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals of the 1950s and maybe a couple of others. But first, the news. So the first piece of news is a bit unusual because it's not really Broadway or West End or indeed professional theatre at all, but it is the Jimmy Awards happened this week. And the Jimmy Awards are an award show for high school theatre in the States. And basically the judges go around the country watching high school productions and pick out finalists. They all go to New York do some professional training, talk to songwriters. So they had a session with Pasek and Paul, which was adorable on the little video. And they get to perform on a Broadway stage. So it's a really amazing opportunity for all these kids. And they are all insanely talented. Interesting little tidbit for you. Even though Blizzarda, who played Kim in Miss Saigon, was actually spotted at the Jimmy Awards. That's where they found her. Yes, so our loyal listeners will be vaguely familiar with the Jimmy Awards for that reason. But there have been many a Broadway performer who succeeded in the Jimmy Awards in their past, even though this is only the 10th Jimmy Awards this year. So it's done amazing things in a short time. And I just think it's a really amazing opportunity for these kids. And they are just so crazily talented. Just a little shout out to the two winners, with Andrew Barfeldman and Renee Rapp, who I'm sure will go on to do great things in the world of musical theatre and Andrew Barth Feldman I think could just I mean obviously he needs training but if Dear Evan Hansen is still on in five years I think he's a shoo-in. Some more news is that a new musical about the life and music of Michael Jackson is currently in development. It's expected to come to Broadway in 2020 so quite a way away yet but Christopher Wheeldon, who directed and choreographed An American in Paris, was also going to direct and choreograph this musical. Casting and sort of a timeline is still to be announced, but obviously Michael Jackson had a ton of great music. There is obviously Thriller, the musical, which isn't really... I mean, it's the most jukeboxy of jukebox musicals. Yeah. I don't think there's... Is there even a plot line, or is it just... I'm pretty sure there's no plot. I don't think there is. So maybe this will be more about his life and more, more in the vein of Tina, which yeah. is sort of... More of a quality product. More of a quality product. I think it's interesting they've got Christopher Wheeldon on board, given that his background is ballet, mm. pretty much exclusively, mm. even with American and Paris. So it'll be interesting to see what he does, when obviously you'd think with... Jackson, a lot of the choreography will stem from like what he did already. Yeah. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do. But then yeah. again, you know. Less jukebox musicals. Yeah. Like, let's just all stop it, guys. Why don't we write new musicals for the theatre? Please. New oh. music, please. And in other pretty much unnecessary news, there's been an update on the Cats movie musical, which I just don't see why they're making a movie of it. There's already an excellent stage recording that I feel like every 90s kid had on VHS. And that was perfection. And we don't need to bother with this. But they're bothering. So they've announced a choreographer for that. It's going to be um, Wayne McGregor, who again is a ballet choreographer primarily, which I think does work very well for Cats. Part of me wishes that it'd be nice for them to keep with the original choreography and maybe rework it a little bit because I think that's part of what makes the show so strong. It'd be interesting to see what Wayne McGregor does with it. And apparently they're going to be shooting that in November. That's the news. That is this week's news. I love how the only thing we're enthusiastic about is 18-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> 
Sounds about right. Yeah. So now we're going to continue with our musical decade series. We're on to the 1950s, which really was the golden age in musicals. So much to talk about this week that we've had to split it into two parts. So this week we're going to start with Guys and Dolls in 1950, which has been described as the greatest American musical of all time. I mean, none other than Bob Fosse. By none other. Mr. Jazz Hands himself. Bob himself. So the music and lyrics for Guys and Dolls were written by Frank Lesser, and the score of Guys and Dolls is one of its most sort of unique features. So there's 14 songs in the show, and they're a real mix. So there's obviously the classic Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, which is a real showstopper. There's I've Never Been in Love Before. There's My Time of Day. There's Luck Be a Lady. There's Adelaide's Lament. There are so many great songs in this show. As I said, it opened in 1950 at the 46th Street Theatre in New York to rave reviews. I think the score, Frank Lester's score, is often singled out as its sort of crowning glory. Although, interestingly, it did not win Best Original Score at the Tony Awards. It did win Best Musical and Best Book. And it ran for over 1,200 shows on Broadway over three years and won the 1951 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So if you don't know the plot of Guys and Dolls, it's set in 1930s New York. There is a con man and gambler whose name is Nathan Detroit. What a name. And he has to find a new home for his illegal games. Yes. Illegal gambling. His illegal gambling games, basically. He doesn't have the money to do that. So to make the money, he bets Sky Masterson that Sky can't succeed in taking a particular woman chosen by Nathan on a date to Cuba. So Sky agrees to the bet and Nathan picks Sarah Brown. While he's persuading Sarah to go on this date with him, He they fall in love, basically. So Guys and Dolls opened on the West End in 1953. And then in 1955, the Hollywood movie adaptation came out, which starred Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, Gene Simmons and Vivian Blaine and is just thoroughly enjoyable and not only because of Marlon Brando's face. Interestingly, Marlon Brando's obviously not a singer. Yeah, and there was a lot of controversy because Frank Sinatra thought that he should have had that role and Marlon Brando, to this day, uh, is slightly criticised for his kind of speak singing in that part. But, you know, it's it's also about the, the mood of the character and to be honest, we've seen a lot worse movie musical casting. Yes, we um, have. At least he can, he can mostly pull it off. Obviously, Guys and Dolls has been revived and revived and revived over the years. There have been a lot of West End revivals. I am particularly sad that I didn't see the Jamie Parker revival, which was a few years ago now. And I'm sad that I didn't see Ewan McGregor, which was even more years ago than that. I've never actually seen Guys and Dolls. Next time it revives, we should go. And we did mention the new segment a couple of weeks ago that there's going to be a semi-staged concert for a couple nights at the Royal Albert Hall uh, towards the end of this year. Yes. And so I think, yeah, I'll try and get along to that because I've seen the film but never seen it on stage. And it has some really fantastic music and it's just generally fun. So the rest of this episode is going to be us talking about the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals of the 1950s. The first of which was The King and I, which opened in 1951. Now, Rodgers and Hammerstein actually had to be persuaded to write The King and I. They were approached by representatives of Gertrude Lawrence, who is an English stage star. She wanted to play the lead in a musical based on Anna and the King of Siam, which was a novel released in 1944, which is based on the memoirs of an English woman who was actually employed by the King of Siam, which is modern-day Thailand, to teach his wives and children. And they had some reservations about the project at first, and particularly about Gertrude Lawrence as the star. But eventually they were persuaded and they wrote the show, basically. Interestingly, the 
vocal limitations of Gertrude Lawrence are sort of responsible for some of the songs in the show, such as I Whistle a Happy Tune and Getting to Know You being quite sort of stereotypically easy to sing because they didn't overstretch her vocal range at the time and they left the sort of more demanding numbers to other members of the cast. So one of the interesting things about this show is that obviously most musicals at the time and to be honest still Still today have a sort of romantic story right at the core so the male lead and female lead typically end up together Mm -hmm. romantically but in this show Anna and the king are uh, not enemies frenemies frenemies is the perfect word there's a lot of conflict between them yeah there's there is respect and and some love you know but in a very platonic way very sort of not provocative in the sense that she will she's the only one willing to argue with him basically and question his methods and there's only really one moment in the show where they sort of drop that sort of tension with each other which is in the song shall we dance they are dancing they're doing the polka you guessed it they're They're doing the polka so we actually went to see the king and i this week which is the west end transfer of the broadway production starring ken watanabe and kelly o'hara and i was actually surprised i thought it would seem a lot more dated but I guess I was surprised at how, for a musical in 1951, the female lead felt like she could have been written today. Yes. She was, I mean, it's like the trope, strong female lead. But she was very empowered. She really, really stood her ground on everything. And there was a lot of feminist messaging kind of throughout. Like, I'm not less than anyone else just because I'm a woman. And trying to kind of empower the other women Mm -hmm. in the king's court. And there are a lot more female characters the male characters and i think the female characters are painted in much better light than the male characters yes, there are very absolutely. few i would say maybe the king's son i mean we're, like the king is maybe we want to talk a bit about the king's questionable character and like whether he's redeemed at the end or whether he is likable but i think really the only male character with any kind of depth that's likable is the king's son what about think... Anna's son? Sweet Louie. And Anna's son. Okay. So the children. The children. Ad- adult yes. males in the this show. The people that Anna has taught, basically. Yeah. A- adult males in this show don't ha- have much to give. And the males that do are it's Anna's influence. Let's talk about the king. Let's talk about the king. And let's also talk about Ken Watanabe. Because I had problems with Ken Watanabe. Firstly, I don't think he's got a particularly good singing voice. Which is... I mean, he only has one real singing moment in the show but I feel like it's a problem that he couldn't sing it I also had problems with his enunciation I found him I've always had this problem with Ken Watanabe apparently I'm the only one yeah we did have a pre-recording chat and apparently Rachel just never knows what Ken Watanabe is he's been in so many films I always have to subtitle him I just cannot make sense of his accent I think I don't think he's very good at enunciating I would say that I found him very easy to understand at all times except during the number a puzzlement which is to his um defense very fast very all over the place yeah you you have to work hard and maybe his enunciation isn't strong enough there but i thought his performance was very good i think i mean kelly o'hara is outstanding oh kelly o'hara was incredible and i can listen to her sing all day every day and never get bored just i think my favorite soprano ever of all time i just think it's so so pretty and so crystal clear and her vibrato is not annoying and that's so rare I would to agree find with that. a soprano. Yeah, that I definitely agree. I think, yeah, so that one song, A Puzzleman, I thought it was sometimes hard to catch what he was saying, but... I just feel like I also have problems with, and this might not be due to his performance, this might be because of the book or maybe it's just because it's, it maybe is a little bit dated. I didn't find him remotely likeable. And I think that is 
is maybe more justifiable. Thanks. He... Not that you're you're not liking his singing. You can like you can think what you think. That was a bit harsh. I'm like, well, no way to justify that. But... I just think the king makes a lot of poor decisions in the show, and obviously this is set in the 1800s. It's set a long time ago. Things were very very different back then. You're not supposed to find his decisions understandable necessarily, but. I feel like there were opportunities for more warmth or more nuance and I didn't feel like I got them. I felt like he went very broad with the comedy of the performance and he didn't have any relationship with his children, really, any of them. And obviously oh, they weren't really... He, like, swung the little one around. Yeah, but I just didn't feel like any real tenderness towards the children or the wives or... But the wives, they weren't romantic. Like, I think he Not was tender... Not even the lead wife, though. Oh, I thought he was tender to the lead wife. Oh, I wasn't so sure. Mm. Maybe I'm being unnecessarily harsh. Yeah, I thought there was some tenderness there. I think there is a problem in that... Because it's a tricky one, because he does become a bit more likeable throughout the show, only to then kind of ruin it at the end. Like, that's yeah. a book like, issue. There was, there was growth. There was growth. Yeah, and then but then... My apparently ish- he hasn't learned anything yeah. at all. But then there's that part of me that's like, is what we see as growth just westernization? So, like, obviously some yes. things, like, don't beat people and don't randomly kill people. Don't that's have slaves. That's not good. Um, don't have slaves, but did he have slaves? I would say that Top Tim was a slave. But she, she was there against her will and he wouldn't let her go. But, like, I think Western women were, like, wives generally then didn't have much freedom. Women generally didn't have much freedom, it's which true, is why I think, you know, Anna was obviously a really notable, unique character. Mm. So there I is, think that is that is yeah. that problem of like oh look we're making these savages more acceptable. I mean, for I mean those that who is don't like know a literal the, theme in yeah. the show. Is... For those who don't know the show is this English woman goes over to teach um, the king of Siam's kids and wives, and then basically they have to stage a kind of civilized performance for an English ambassador because they think that the the king is a, a savage basically, mm-hmm. or the king of Siam. So Anna helps them to seem less savage for a little show for this English guy. Yeah. And so she dresses them in Western dresses and they yeah. perform Which... a play and wear makeup like that yeah. they would have been wearing in Victorian England at the Which time. Which is like, I mean, now looking at it, and it would have been the same in the 1950s as well to a certain extent, is that the dresses that the Western women were wearing then are far more like constrained. Like I would yeah. say that the women of Siam are wearing very practical clothing really comfortable floaty it's a hot place yeah and there's Anna wandering around in like a corset and a giant skirt yeah so it I think it does play with with the kind of ridiculous nature of this woman saying no this is how this is how we do it properly this is what you should be wearing this is what civilized people wear yeah when obviously it's actually more ridiculous yeah I think it that is the slight problematic nature of them just trying to kind of westernize but I think I feel like the show actually does kind of tread that ground quite well. Like, I thought I would watch it and... Because I've seen... I'd seen the film of The King and I, but when I was a kid and I haven't watched it for a long time, and I just thought, it's going to seem really dated. It's, I mean, it's going to seem really out of place. But I thought, in the way that it dealt with that sort of... The racial stuff, I didn't feel was that dated. I think, actually, because maybe of the direction of us of a kind of highlighting the fact that the... The English way is just as ridiculous, you know, even though, like, generally it's accepted today that you shouldn't have 20 wives, um, or however many he had. But yeah, I thought the the strong female lead was 
Yes. It was nice. Anne Topton, although she is very young and... She was great. She's, she's so great she's the youngest wife. I thought she also had some strength. It was a beautiful production as well. It was lit very well and the set design was great and choreography was good. And obviously it's only just opened in the West End, so it was, I think this was maybe the third preview. So yeah. it was in fantastic shape considering when we saw it. One thing to know is that it starts at 7pm. 7pm. So don't do what we did, which was wandering at 6.57 thinking we had plenty of time yeah. to buy a programme. It starts at 7, so just be aware. Be aware, because they will not send their pre-show email until four hours before you're meant to be in your seat, when of course you will not check it because you'll be at work. Mm-hmm. It was so stressful. So turn up early. Make sure turn you're on time. Turn up early. Um, That's what I so, the original Broadway run of King and I ran for over 1,200 performances. It won five Tony Awards, including Best Musical. It transferred to the West End. It ran at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane for three years-ish. And it's obviously had lots and lots of revivals since, including, obviously, the 2015 Broadway revival, which is now in the West End, as we said. So, yeah, would recommend going to see it if you feel like seeing a sort of classic 50s Roger Stammerstein musical. It does feel... It felt to me a little bit dated, but that doesn't take away from... The performance of Kelly O'Hara, especially because she was fantastic, and lots of cute children as well. If you like cute children, you'll like this show, and also lots of classic songs like "Getting to Know You" is a great song. "I Whistle a Happy Tune" is a great song, but mainly the cute children. Mainly the cute children. Oh my god, so tiny! And then probably the most famous Rodgers and Hammerstein musical opened in the 1950s as well, sneaking in in 1959, "The Sound of Music." I'm sure that no one needs to be told what the sound of music is about. But, you know, there's these kids and they need a a sort of a nanny and their dad is very distant. And then there's a young nun, Maria, who who is a bit bit fleeting in the the nunnery. She comes in and they all love her and she brings music into their household and brings their father back in touch with his children and they fall in love and it's beautiful and then the Nazis are there and that's not beautiful and then they run away across the mountains. epic story. An epic story. It's just like, I feel like with The Sound of Music and obviously I love it, it's a classic. It's kind of like they did one musical and then they just shoved another one on. Like, you feel like you've done it. The, like when Maria and the captain end up together you're like what a lovely sweet musical beautiful yeah. and then it's like Nazis what I thought you were going to say was that when I was watching The King and I I was like this is basically just the sound of music but set in Siam yeah, it's true, like actually, it's just yeah. a woman a great woman surrounded by children that is teaching true. them things that's what they wanted in the 50s just like, amazing women inspiring adorable children yeah so this was based on a memoir by Maria von Trapp, so it's based on a true story, I think at least in part. I'm sure it's elaborated to an extent. Yeah. So the stage production of The Sound of Music opened in 1959, but obviously we have to talk about the film, which came out in 1965, is one of the most successful musicals in history, starring Julie Andrews. I think when people think of The Sound of Music, most of them would think of the film. I agree. And I think the continuing popularity of the film through the years has led to things like the NBC live broadcast of The Sound of Music starring Carrie Underwood as Maria. Don't really understand why that happened, especially when Laura Bonanti was in the cast, but not as Maria. Mm. Like, But there was also a UK one, UK live Sound of Music with Cara Twinton, wasn't it? Wasn't it Cara Twinton? I, think that, well, I thought you were also going to say there was obviously the Andrew the Webber reality series well, that, to cast yeah. Maria, which I was so dedicated to. Which was to. the original one of the Angela which Webber shows. Which was the original one. And- Oh, I they didn't... were just so great. We need more of those. We do need more of those. If you're listening, fantastic. Andrew, come on, Andrew. Let's do cats. Let's not do cats. Let's do cats, something cats, actually cats. good, please. Let's do something that's not one of your shows. I know Sunday music is not one of your shows, but let's just do something good, shall we? 
little bit of trivia for you about the Andrew Lloyd Webber show. Apparently, Scarlett Johansson was meant to play Maria in the West End revival that they were casting for, and when that fell through, they decided to do the reality show to cast an unknown, and that's how Connie Fisher got the role. So it could have been Scarlett Johansson, I mean, that... and instead we got Connie Fisher. Just says a lot, doesn't it, about way Andrew Lloyd Webber? She's way better. Sure. She being Connie. Obviously, The Sound of Music has so many classic songs in it. How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria, My Favourite Things, 16 Going On 17, Do Re Me, The Lonely Goat Herd, Edelweiss, Climb Every Mountain. God, I could go on and on. There are so, so many fantastic songs in The Sound of Music. And worth saying also that the film won five Oscars, including Best Picture. The original Broadway production also won Best Musical, Best Leading Actress, and Best Featured Actress. So a whole host of awards for what is actually, I think, a real favourite of mine. I think it's a classic. Yeah, I've I never agree. seen it on stage, but I would really, really love to. If they've not had a row of that for a long time here, I don't think. Yeah, not since that Andrew Lloyd Webber, Connie Fisher. Bring production. it back, Andrew. Bring it Bring back. Bring it back. So that is it for this Rodgers and Hammerstein special of the 1950s. Next week we'll be talking about the 50s again, but with plenty more shows to talk about. Sneak preview, we'll be talking about West Side Story, Gypsy, My Fair Lady, etc., etc. Lots of big ones. Lots of big ones. What I will say to round out, this is just a, a personal favourite while we're talking Rodgers and Hammerstein, is the really fun medley of Rodgers and Hammerstein songs on YouTube, performed by Matt Doyle, one of my faves, and Katie Gassett. And they just pretty much every, if not every single Rodgers and Hammerstein show gets a mention. And it's just delightful. So go check that out. Rodgers and Hammerstein medley by Matt Doyle and Katie Gassett. Ball bulletin. I think we talked enough about him last week to last a lifetime. Uh, yeah. It's been his birthday, so I hope he had a great one. Yeah, he deserves a nice relaxing day. Also, Alfie Bo and Michael Ball's winning streak continued this week as they won the PPL UK Classical Award at this year's Silver Clefts Awards, which I'm sure we all know exactly what they are. So excited for them. I'm very happy. Apart from that, I think he's just enjoying the World Cup. Aren't we all? Well, are we? Any other business? I've been watching a lot of The Staircase. I'm five I, episodes into The Staircase. I have started The Staircase. It's very intriguing. It's very, very good. It, it, it's quite creepy. Like, it features footage of, like, a real dead body, yeah. which is not nice, and I can't watch it alone. But it's a really, really good show. So, yeah. if you like true crime, definitely give it a go. I'm also reading The Fact of a Body by... I'm going to pronounce her name. I think it's Alexandra Mazzano-Lesnovich which is about it's sort of a parallel story between a true crime case of a man in i think georgia maybe who killed a six-year-old boy and this woman who's writing the book she is part of the team that's investigating whether he can have an appeal years and years later and it sort of reminds her of some stuff that happened to her some traumatic things that happened to her in her own life as a child and so it's paralleling these two stories and i still don't know quite where it's gonna go but it's very very interesting it's very well written and I just like a true crime book, so I'm You're having it very some much. real fun. I real am. lightweight fun, yeah. aren't you? So that is it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the beginning of the nineteen fifties. And we'll be back next week to talk more about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we will. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.